So what do you think about these statements? What is true individually can also be true or represent what is true collectively. So what is true individually can also represent what is true collectively, sort of a bigger group of people. That how we act individually tends to be how we are gonna react or act corporately or collectively as a group. And sort of the opposite would also be true as well, that what is true collectively as a group can also represent what is true for individuals within that group. Uh, how we act collectively as a group tends to be, again, how we're gonna act as individuals. Uh, maybe one of the best examples of this is going into debt. It's at least the one that comes forefront in my mind. Um, is our nation in debt because our political leaders uh, are making bad choices with our money? Or is it more so that our individuals in our country are making bad choices with money and going into debt? Or do they sort of feed off each other in some senses because individuals are making the choices for the group and the group is making choices for the individuals? Um, the individuals, uh, the, the individual decisions impact us collectively as a group, um, but also the other was true, right? The decisions of a group impact us individually. Uh, this is true in other areas of life as well, right? It's not just in that, that area of debt. Um, but one of the areas that I think it's, it's particularly important for a group like ours to think about is how we view Jesus. How we view Jesus and how do you view Jesus? Um, because how we view Jesus individually impacts the collective group, that, how we view Jesus as a nation or as a state or as a region in the country, but also how those groups view Jesus impacts us individually. So I'd also put into there uh, how our political leaders, since we're sort of talking about this idea of Christians and politics, uh, how our political leaders view Jesus also impacts us as, a, again, a group, but also individually as well. And I think it's no secret. Um, if it is a secret to you, then let me enlighten you. Uh, our nation is moving towards a post-Christian or maybe already in a post-Christian era where Christianity is not the primary sort of focus or viewpoint uh, of people in the world. And, and there's many, or in our country, I should say, uh, you know, there's many reasons for this. There's many, um, many studies being done on this. And, and I wonder if part of the reason, right, there's many reasons, but I wonder if part of the reason is that there are more individuals who are admirers of Jesus not necessarily followers of Jesus. And as we're gonna talk about today, I think there's a significant distinction between those two words and those two ideas. The individuals in every walk of life, including politicians, but in every, uh, individuals in every walk of life, there are people who admire Jesus. They look to Jesus and say, oh yeah, I, I like what he says, I like what he does, I think he's a good person, I, you know, all those kind of things. And yet, we also have this sort of political sphere where people from both political parties, both major political parties, want to sort of claim Jesus as their, on their side, right? He would be on their side as somebody that they would support their agenda and their things. But the question might be, but are either sides or anyone from either sides actually following Jesus? Because again, it's very different to admire Jesus than actually to follow Jesus. More on that in a moment. Uh, real quick though, we're, we're wrapping up this series today called Christians in Politics um, because obviously the midterm elections are this week, they're in a couple days, um, and so we're sort of giving this guide for how Christians should look at politics and how we should uh, address politics, how we should approach politics uh, with our faith in mind. Uh, now, if you're starting to look at those voter guides or you're starting to look at YouTube videos about you know, comparing candidates and, and all the propositions that we have to deal with, this is not going to be that, right? This has not been that. It will never be that as long as I'm here, <laughs> which, um, yeah. But I, uh, <laughs> the, the point on that is that um, there's something a little bit differently that we're trying to look at. We're trying to look at something a bit more foundational to our faith and how we deal with politics through our faith. And so this is sort of a guide to sort of navigate these strange, right? Politics has become a strange thing where people are so polarized 
polarized it seems, and it seems like you know there's very different views, very extreme views on either side, and, it, and just how do you how do you navigate this? And then not on top of that, um, people are very um, not getting along with each other very well, right? People from different sides just can't have a, a conversation; they just have to talk at each other and talk you know bad things about each other. And so, what should we do as Christians? Because Jesus would come along and he demonstrates something very different. He demonstrated a different posture, a different tone and a different approach for how to treat people than the way the world would treat people. Now, all politicians, I wouldn't necessarily group in with the world, but sort of in general, politics has got this sort of vibe of there's a certain approach and a certain tone and, and a certain posture that you take with people. And Jesus is very different than that. Jesus comes along and brings us something different. So basically through the series, real, real quick overview, um, we've looked at different aspects, uh, how how Christians view winning and losing, which is very different from the way the world views winning and losing, very different how politicians view winning and losing. We've looked at how Christians view our call to action, like sort of what's our response given um, all that's happening in the world. We've looked at how Christians view motivation, like what's the center focus of our motivation? And we've talked about that Peter sort of gave us the way forward, but because you say so, Jesus. It's not for any other reason other than because you say so, Jesus. If we're following Jesus, if we're actually Jesus followers. And then last week we looked at sort of our view of how Christians are supposed to view people. And we sort of think about this politically. Um, people, in a political sense, are the constituents, right? They're the people that are in a group of uh, a region that sort of elect a representative. And the, the representative is supposed to serve the constituents. But there gets to be some strange views within that about how the uh, politicians sometimes view the people that are they're supposed to be serving, right? And sometimes politicians can see their constituents as just sort of pawns to move around in their chess game to sort of get the things that they want to get done. Uh, politicians can see people as, as the way to a goal, the, the way to a, reach a goal, and they're just along in the process, right? Uh, politicians can see people as numbers just to count towards a victory or towards whatever thing they're trying to achieve. Now, this sort of, in some ways, just sort of seems like the natural way that our political system is at this point. And yet, again, as Jesus followers, we're called to something very different. While politicians see their constituents as pawns, Jesus followers and Christians are supposed to see people as image bearers of God. And those are, those are very different things. Not an object to be used for your own advantage, but to treat people as somebody that God also loves, and they bear his identity as well. Uh, politicians see people as a way to sort of reach a goal, but Christians are supposed to see people as the goal, that, they are, that we're supposed to invest in people and, and, and develop relationships with people. Uh, politicians can see people as numbers to count, whereas Christians are supposed to see people as God, as people that God actually loves. So before we sort of just bash on politicians, have you ever done any of that, right? Have we ever done any of those things where we see people as pawns to move in our career, or maybe it's just within our family to get the thing done we want to get done, or maybe you viewed a person as a means to an end, that they're sort of just uh, along the way towards the goal that you're trying to reach, there's people along the way, and you're just like, okay, I'm going to get there. Or maybe you viewed people as numbers, maybe it's numbers to count, or dollar signs you see, or we can be just as susceptible to this as politicians as well. And so um, we said basically that beyond politics, the way that Christians view people is that Christians treat all people as if they're God's constituents, because in some ways they are. God is loving and caring for these people, and so we should do the same as well. So today, we're going to kind of shift from how we view people to specifically one of the you know, central focuses of our faith, how we view Jesus. And today we're going to look at how Christians should view Jesus above and beyond what our political side might say about Jesus. Because our political side, no matter what political side you're a part of, has something to say about Jesus. They might not have a, an actual you know, talking point about it per se, but, but they do say things that some of them even quote Jesus. They might not realize they're quoting Jesus, but they quote Jesus. Um, some of them sort of reject Jesus and just kind of go a different direction and say, yeah, he's okay, but you know, not going not gonna to go that way. And so there's a couple different responses you can have to sort of dealing with Jesus as a person. Uh, 
again, the, sort of the initial one was you could just sort of reject Jesus and just say, yeah, I'm not so sure that really happened or any of that really happened or he was anything about who he said he was and I'm just going to kind of push back on that. And maybe some of you have sort of a little bit of that maybe inside of you, but I would suggest if you're here, you have enough curiosity or if you're watching online, you have enough curiosity to say, well, I'm not so sure that that's all that I want to do with Jesus is just reject him, okay? So that's, that's one option. Um, the second option is to sort of that you could you know read the accounts of Jesus's life, read about Jesus in the Bible, or read about it from other people talking about Jesus, and you could sort of do what I think a lot of people around Jesus did even, and just again sort of admire Jesus and oh yeah I like that miracle he did I liked how he fed me uh, I like how he you know teaches teaches about those things and he seems to talk about love a lot and I, I like those kind of things I sort of admire Jesus, but it's still a few steps from where we're going to talk about this third option is, which is you could follow. Jesus. Now, following Jesus is a whole, bit, a whole bit, a big deal, and it's sort of saying, I'm going to follow what Jesus teaches, and I'm going to try to become the person that Jesus wants me to become by following Jesus and, and, and letting him lead my life, not just you know, sort of putting myself in front and letting Jesus trail behind me. No, I'm going to get behind Jesus, and I'm going to go wherever he wants me to go. I'm going to talk to whoever he wants me to talk with. I'm going to let him change my heart the way that he needs to sort of change my heart. And as we're going to see, we don't necessarily get to pick and choose the areas of our life where we're just going to admire Jesus and where we're going to actually follow Jesus. That this sort of following Jesus includes more than just saying, oh yeah, that thing's okay, I like that, but I'm not so sure I can do that. So I'm going to do these other things instead only and you know, sort of just push that aside. That's not what Jesus was about. Because, as we're going to see, Jesus went to such great lengths to help provide a way forward for us, to invite us to follow him, that it doesn't really leave us much of an option on choosing sort of, oh yeah, I want to admire this, and maybe I'll follow that, or maybe I'll you know, consider that. There's really only one option. If you're going to actually say you're following Jesus, you have to follow him with your whole life. And this is just my opinion, so take it for what it's worth, just an opinion. You didn't come here to hear my opinion, but this sort of leads us in, I think, to where we're going to go today. Um, some politicians, maybe many, but I'll just say some, some politicians are just admirers of Jesus. They're not followers of Jesus. And there's an important distinction, again, when we're thinking about politics and we're thinking about who we're going to vote for and all those different things that are important. There's a big distinction between just admiring Jesus and actually following him. And in the world, I would say there's also a lot more admirers of Jesus than there are actually followers of Jesus. And, the, and so again, general population, there's a lot of people that are willing to say, yeah, I can, I can go with Jesus a little bit on that. I, I, I appreciate what he says. But following Jesus comes with a cost. And as we're going to see, Jesus is willing to pay that cost for us. And if we're not willing to do that, then maybe we're not actually following. We're more of just an admirer. So we're going to start in Luke chapter 23, if you want to follow along there. Um, I don't have the notes in the Bible app, unfortunately. But you can follow along in the Bible app with the verses. Um, you can look up the verses there, or we'll have them on the screen as well. So Luke chapter 23 is where we're going to start. We're also going to be in Luke chapter 9, too, as well. So um, we've basically been spending most of our time in the gospel of Luke, Luke's account of Jesus' life. And I think what Luke would say is what happens at the end of my account, Luke would say, is the whole reason that any of it really matters, that the, the, the you know, stories of Jesus' teaching and the stories of his miracles are great, but what happens at the end, which is what we're going to read about today, is really the reason why Luke decided to actually write anything about Jesus' life and document what happens. That what, if, if what happens at the end didn't actually happen, or it doesn't actually happen, then the rest of it really doesn't necessarily matter. There wouldn't be a reason to document Jesus' life. And if what happens at the end doesn't happen, 
then Jesus is just a sort of wannabe prophet, a wannabe Messiah, a wannabe teacher, a wannabe rabbi, which there was lots of those. And what happened to them is the same thing maybe that would happen to Jesus. But something at the end of Jesus' life was very, very different from that. And so that's why at the end of this story of Jesus' life, it's so, so incredibly important to how we view Jesus. So starting in verse 33, says this, when they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Now, some of you maybe kind of wonder, like, well, why aren't there more details about this? Now, we actually do have some other details from the other gospel writers, but there wasn't a whole lot of details about what a crucifixion really was because the audience to whom Luke was writing and the other people were writing to, they didn't need much more than this is a crucifixion. <laughs> they didn't need to know all the details because likely they had probably, um, you know, walked by a crucifixion as it happened. They had seen a crucifixion. They had maybe even known of someone who was crucified. You know, parents had probably um, at some point walked their kids by a crucifixion, and, you know, to kind of turn their heads. Don't look, you know, like we sometimes do for accidents. Like, don't look at the accident. Don't look. You know, just turn their heads, right? And it would be kind of similar, I think, in some ways to today if you came up here and said, yeah, I went to get a, my, my teeth cleaned this week. Not many of us would need to go, well, like, what is that like? Like, what does that actually involve? Like, we just sort of know. Hopefully, most of you know and have had the opportunity to do that, right? And know what a teeth cleaning is. And so in the first century Roman Empire, they didn't necessarily need to give a whole lot of details about what was actually happening in the crucifixion. They just needed to hear, and he was crucified. And they sort of knew that mental picture. They knew what it sounded like. They knew what it smelled like. They knew what it looked like. They, they had heard those things before. And so we think that crucifixion was sort of created by the Persians and then the, the Greeks sort of advanced a little bit and improved on it, if you can say improved with crucifixion, I don't know. Um, and then again, if you can say this, uh, the, the Romans really perfected it and sort of honed in on a certain way to do it. Um, and this wasn't just a way to kill someone, this was a way to sort of keep them alive and make them suffer. It was not just a punishment, it was a deterrent. It was sort of a visible reminder to people, don't mess with Rome, don't mess with us, this is the outcome if you do. And so it was sort of a, a, a display of terror. It was a living display of terror that people saw. And it was mostly reserved for political uh, you know, rebels or criminals. Um, and so Jesus is up there being crucified. And while he's being crucified, verse 34, Jesus said something. And what Jesus says in this moment is, is one of those things that just shows us how different the way of Jesus is from the way of the world, from our natural way to live life, because what he says next is just so different. Again, it's something you really wouldn't even be able to make up, I don't think, except for the fact that we know that it's happened. And, and Jesus would say a lot of sort of unsettling, disturbing things before this, right, in his, all of his teaching before his crucifixion. He said some things that really disturbed people. He called people names sometimes. He called them brood of vipers. He, you know, he said a lot of disturbing things. But this one thing that he says at the end of his life is so un unsettling, it's so disturbing. And, and, and in some ways, he invites all of us to this thing that he's gonna do and say in this verse. And what Jesus says from the cross, in some ways it makes perfect sense, right? With, with our perspective of you know, seeing the whole scope of Jesus' life and seeing the whole width and breadth of his life, it sort of makes sense because the way that he lived his life before the crucifixion, it sort of led, lends itself very easily to how he lived and how he died on the cross. And he sort of was modeling at the beginning, modeling a way forward for us and a way to live. And he continued to do that through the blood and the sweat and the tears and the pain at the end of his life as well. And he invites us all to live the same way as him, including through our death and through his death and the way he lived it. 
that what Jesus is going to say next is so disturbing and it's also so liberating. It's so, you know, sort of these both things mixed together. He invites us to follow him even when people threaten us or even when people actually hurt us. What he is, is going to do is he's going to invite us to follow him um, knowing that our security with, is with God. It's not anywhere in this world. He invites us to follow him to react differently to people who mistreat us. He's going to invite us to follow him to not power up to other people, but to love them, again, even when they hurt you. He invites us to follow him with a different posture, a different tone, a different approach, really from anywhere we see in the world, but including what we see in our political spheres. And he models it to the very end. Now, if you've ever seen someone, as we're going to see, if you've ever seen someone react the way that we're going to see Jesus react, it's just so humbling in a sense. You think, there's, I don't know, I wish I could do that maybe if that opportunity came through, but I'm not sure that I actually could do that. It's, it's remarkable. Uh, and if you're on the receiving end of something like what Jesus is going to say, it's just incredibly humbling, even more so. And you're just like, I, I just don't deserve that. But what Jesus says next is just so, again, so different. It's a different way to live. And he says this, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And as if that wasn't remarkable enough, um, what he says is so powerful because of, obviously, what, what's happening in his life and how he's dying and suffering. But on top of that, there's other things sort of happening while he's saying this. And we see that uh, in the next verse. While Jesus was dying and, and, and also forgiving people, um, continuing on with the rest of the verse, and the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. <laughs> While he's forgiving people, he's got this little group of people gambling for his clothes because clothing was valuable. And so they're also gambling for the very clothes that he was wearing at one point. And so all this is just, it's astounding, right? It's amazing that Jesus was able to forgive all the people that were trying to kill him. He's also forgiving the people that are gambling at his feet and down there. And it's like, it's, this is just amazing, right? It's, it's, again, one thing to sort of admire what Jesus is doing here. But this is where it sort of starts to get the gap between admiring and, and following. Because it's one thing to admire Jesus for, to forgive people that are hurting him. It's a very different thing to forgive the people who are actually hurting you, right? That's a whole different thing and a whole different ballgame. Um, because let's be honest, a, a couple things about this. Number one, if following, me, if following Jesus means actually doing this, so many of us would be tempted to say, no way, right? I don't want to forgive that other person. I don't want to forgive the person who hurt me. And much less, you know, they weren't killing me, but I don't want to forgive them for what they said or what they did or how they treated me or how they didn't treat me or whatever the case might be. And so it'd be very easy for us to say, yeah, I don't want to follow him <laughs> because I just, that doesn't, I don't want to do that. And then secondly, uh, if we're just honest with ourselves, at some point, I think at some point we've all thought that this sort of view was a little bit weak or passive, right? It, it sort of pushes against everything in some ways that America stands for and sort of taking initiative and being, being active and, and aggressive and having strength and being strong and bold and all those sort of kind of words that we would use maybe, that somehow it seems a little bit weak that Jesus would do this. And yet, if you've ever been in this position or you've ever seen anybody else in this position, you know the reality is it takes incredible, incredible strength you might even say superhuman strength to be able to do anything like this. But interestingly, by first century standards and also by our 21st century standards, Jesus lost, right? <laughs> by all measures, Jesus lost in this moment. Jesus did not win. His enemies seemed to win, right? His enemies defeated him. They killed him. They, they stopped him from being able to teach. They stopped him from being able to heal people and perform miracles, that his enemies would even go to the point of trying to arrest him, and Jesus would not resist them. His, his followers tried to resist them, right? His followers tried to you know, pull out their swords and defend them. 
And yet again, by human standards, by our earthly standards, Jesus said, no, don't resist them. That's not the way that, that I want you to live. That's not my way to live. And it just seems so disturbing that Jesus, again, in this moment, he's forgiving the people who are killing him. He, he didn't want his people to resist being arrested. He, he just came to this place. It just seems so un-American. It, it seems so unhuman. And definitely, in many ways, it seems unpolitical, right? In our political, you got to fight for everything. you got to grab everything. you got to do whatever you can to keep your rights and, and hang on to things. And again, this is where it would be so much easier, <laughs> so much easier to just believe in Jesus and just admire Jesus. And those are not even bad things, but Jesus invites us to something more, to follow his example, to follow his way of living. So as we sort of start off this discussion, which one are you? <laughs> which one do you think you've been recently? Are you more of an admirer and you'd sort of check that box? Or do you think that your life is actually showing that you're following Jesus, or maybe you're a little bit in between, that there are parts of your life where you just admire Jesus, and maybe Jesus wants you to sort of move into the, the spot where in that area of your life you're actually following him. That the way of Jesus is, is again, so contrary to our natural ways of living, it's so contrary to the ways of this world, including politics, and yet when you see someone who has the posture of Jesus, the tone, the approach of Jesus, it's sort of jaw-dropping and it's a little bit stunning. When, when this is lived out, it has an effect on people around them, right? This is the reason that we even know about Jesus at all, because there was also people who came after him, who would live this out in the world and live this way that Jesus was, was trying to live. So um, it leads us to the story of Rachel uh, Denhollander. Maybe you know this, and this is sort of a little bit of a few years ago story, but I think it's a powerful illustration of, her story is a powerful illustration of this idea. She was one of the USA gymnasts who uh, initially, she was the first person to accuse uh, one of the doctors uh, in USA Gymnastics of sexual abuse. And so she was the forefront, the pioneer sort of of, of, institute, of, of advocating for them and, and admitting and telling people about what happened. Um, she also then, during the sentencing phase of that doctor who was, who was sentenced to prison for a long time, um, during the sentencing phase, she was actually one of the people who spoke and her speech um, she's a powerful speaker. Now she's actually a lawyer and does a lot of advocating in other areas. She has this powerful speech that um, it sort of encapsulates this way of Jesus being so different from the world. She experienced so much pain and trauma. And it, it's just this powerful statement that she gives. And unfortunately, um, this powerful statement is also something that maybe too many of us in this room or maybe online, joining us online, the statistics would say there's several people that have dealt with something similar to what Rachel dealt with. And, and this is this powerful experience of, of addressing the man who hurt her in such powerful ways. And yet, when you read what she says, it has this way of this, this light piercing the darkness of what she experienced. So I want to just read you a little bit of the, 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 the paragraph that she, or a little bit of a, a part of the speech she gave in the courtroom. And she's addressing this doctor who happened to be carrying a Bible with him as he would come into the courtroom. And so she addresses this. She says, if the Bible you carry says it is better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and you thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble and you have damaged hundreds of children is the implication. The Bible you speak carries uh, a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Jesus so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you as well. 
I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. That this statement from Rachel, it demonstrates the way of Jesus in a powerful, powerful way. And I don't think um, any of us would say that she was weak or she was passive for doing that. In fact, it took incredible courage and strength for her to go through this and maybe even superhuman strength of God. Another story, a different story, but uh, maybe equally as painful. Uh, there's the story of this guy named Anthony Thompson. Uh, in 2015, Anthony Thompson's wife, Myra, and eight of her friends were gunned down in Mother Emanuel AME Church in, in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, and um, by a white supremacist. And as this white supremacist was uh, being held on bond and his bond hearing was going on, he, um, uh, Anthony Thompson went to this, this bond hearing for this man, this white supremacist who had murdered his wife and eight of her friends. And he goes to this bond hearing and he says something that is just remarkable. <laughs> He's, again, living out this message of Jesus in a powerful, powerful way. So 48 hours, this is only 48 hours after his wife has been murdered, here's what he says. I forgive you. My family forgives you. We would like you to take this opportunity to repent. Repent, confess, give your life to the one who matters the most, Christ. So he can change your ways, no matter what happens to you, and you'll be okay. Do that, and you'll be better off than you are right now. And Mr. Thompson he walked into this bond hearing and forgives his wife's murderer out loud in court, not like a long time later, 48 hours after it happened. And not only that, Mr. Thompson would sort of also go on to sort of indicate that he was going to pray for this murderer, that he would find salvation so that he could spend eternity with God. Now, let's think about that just from a very logical perspective. This man was a Jesus follower. He probably thought his wife was a Jesus follower, and he hoped that his wife was in heaven resting with, with God. And he's going to now pray for the murderer of his wife to find the same rest in eternity where his wife, where he's hoping his wife is resting. That is not normal. That is not the way the world views things. And Jesus invites all of us to live this way. He invites us to way, live a way that's very different from the world. Uh, Luke, who documented Jesus' crucifixion, would also document a lot of Jesus' life, obviously, and a lot of his teaching before his crucifixion. And Luke documents sort of the way that Jesus would invite people into this way to follow Jesus, to follow him. And he would say it in these ways that we have to sort of wrestle with a little bit that are a little bit different. Um, but he would, he would demonstrate the way forward. Um, we would see that at the end of his life, but he would also teach it and live it before that. So in Luke chapter 9, Luke, Jesus says this. Jesus said to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower, if, if any of you want to sort of move in my direction and follow what I'm actually doing, then this is what you're going to have to do, he would say. Okay, he continues on. Then he said to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. That basically he would say that following me at some point is going to require you to say no to you and to what you want for your life. Following me is going to require you to not be ruled by your appetites, to not be ruled by your ambition for power or money, to not just only follow the rules of the world. That following me means you can't act or react however you want or however the way the world would say you should act or react. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, 
take up your cross, which again, we sort of don't necessarily know because our crosses are smooth, our crosses are gold, our crosses look nice and pretty, but that's not the way the cross of Jesus really was. That's not what they would have thought in the first century. That crosses in Jesus' day didn't look anything like that. And as one of my favorite pastors, Andy Stanley, says, he says, carrying a cross in the first century meant your independence had come to an end, right? It meant that that was no more going to be your option in the future. You were not going to have a freedom the same way that you had before you carried the cross. It signified living your life differently than however you wanted to live your life. It signified something else, that somebody else had control of your life as you lived it. And then Jesus is going to say something else at the last part of this verse. He's, he's going to add a word that is really one of the differentiators between, again, just sort of being an admirer of Jesus or maybe following Jesus some of the time. He's going to use a word that is, it could rub us the wrong way in some ways because it, it requires something of us. It requires sort of a consistency. He says, if anyone of you wants to be my followers, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily. <laughs> this isn't something we can choose to do on Sunday and not throughout the week or choose some days, not other days. This is something that we're committing to doing daily, that the people who actually make a difference in following Jesus, they don't do this occasionally. This is a daily commitment. This is a daily reminder. God, it's your way, not my way. God, your kingdom come, not my kingdom come. God, your will be done, not necessarily my will be done. God, you are not just my savior and my forgiver of my sins, but you're my king and you're my ruler. You're the one who indicates and directs the, the future of my life. God, I give all of me to you, that you are in control of my thoughts, my feelings, my eyes, my mouth, my ears, my feet, my hands, all that I am, I give to you, Jesus, that I'm giving up my independence daily to choose to follow you. And that requires a daily commitment because if we don't do it daily, let's be honest with ourselves, uh, the next morning we wake up and we're like, oh yeah, and we start doing our own thing again, right? And so there's this daily commitment involved with what Jesus is saying. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily. And again, he says that word, and follow me. This is what it means to follow Jesus. You, you again, get in line behind Jesus and you follow him wherever he wants to take you. And it, sometimes that means saying no to you because you might want to go somewhere else. And Jesus says, no, I want you to keep following me this direction. I want you to submit to me. And if you're a Christian with political views, which I think that's everybody, if you're a Christian with political views, are you submitting to your political views or are you actually submitting to Jesus? Now, sometimes submitting to Jesus involves your political views, right? That's, that's great. And it sort of aligns with your political views at times. But when there's a difference, when your political party says go right and Jesus says go left, are you willing to take the left versus taking the right? Or vice versa if you think I'm trying to say something political. I'm not, I'm not trying to say anything political, okay? The alternative to what Jesus is proposing, though, let's think about the alternative for a second. The alternative to doing what Jesus invites us to do, it's living a very self-centered life. It's focused around ourselves. It's, it's appetite-driven. It's consumer-driven. It's clinging to success. It's clinging to winning the way the world defines winning. And Jesus would say, if you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it, right? You try to hang on to something, whatever you cling to, it's eventually going to diminish and lose value over time. Uh, I would like to say that's true of the Bay Area property market. I don't know. You can <laughs> make that own decision. It goes up and down a little bit. But the point is, whatever thing you're holding on to, eventually it will lose value at some point. You know, the world eventually ends. The property here is not going to be worth a whole lot, right? <laughs> at some point, everything that we're holding on to eventually will lose value and end. If you, you hoard seed, but you don't actually plant it, eventually that seed is going to just rot and it's not going to be good for anything. But Jesus says, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, 
you will save it. And for my sake, it's really for God's kingdom, for his movement, for the direction that he's trying to move the world towards. That Jesus is inviting us to, to plant our lives, to plant our resources, to plant our time and our talents so that God can do something more than just our lives and what we might be able to do with our lives. It's, it's giving your life away to something so much bigger and better and different from what we might do. Now, this can sound threatening, right? Let's be honest. Let's just sound honest. If you give up your life, that sounds a little threatening. It sounds a little bit different. And, and if it sounds threatening, that's partly because we see the world the way that we see the world. But Jesus wants us to see the world a little bit differently, that this isn't a threatening thing. This shouldn't be considered a threatening thing. It might be because you haven't seen this lived out, or it might be because you've seen it, or you, you, it's been around you, but you didn't actually recognize what it was. But if you actually do what Jesus is saying, this is something that can be attractive and, and draw people towards him. He, he wraps up this teaching, and he sort of turns everything around on it. He says, verse 25, And what you do, and what do you do, sorry, and what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but are yourself lost or destroyed? What good is it if someone gains the whole world? Whatever you want, whatever you're pursuing, whatever you're chasing, let's just say you get it. Whatever it is, if you get it, but what if at the same time you lose yourself or your soul or, or you're sort of somehow destroyed in, uh, along the way? What good is it if you think you are winning only to discover that you're playing the wrong game? You might have won in that game, but that's not even the bigger game. That's not even the bigger purpose of your life. What would you benefit from that? And again, this is where Jesus' message is so good, but it's also so difficult and so tough that Jesus isn't just inviting us to a better version of our lives. He's inviting us to a different life altogether. He's not just inviting you to sort of adjust your pace or adjust the way that you're living right now and just slightly make a tweak, though that might be for some of us. For many of us, I think he's inviting us to a completely different life and a completely different way of living, a better way to live. That's something so much bigger than ourselves, so much more than just the power of this world, something that produces fruit beyond our lifetime, that Jesus in many ways was playing a completely different game from the way the world was playing the game. It was with a different goal and a different way of determining winning and losing, that Jesus seemed to be losing and yet he also would win. And he invites us to play this game to lose as well, which might seem like losing as well, but in the end it results in joy and peace and contentment. So if we go back to uh, Jesus being on the cross, again, what Jesus said from the cross, sort of as he's living out this way that he talks about, he's living it out in a very tangible, real way where he's dying on a cross and he's forgiving people who have who put him up on the cross. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Again, they're sort of playing a different game than what we're trying to play. They have a different goal in this world than what we have. The crowd watched and the leaders scoffed. He saved others, they said, let him save himself if he is really God's Messiah, the chosen one. That the people who were, again, sort of the leaders, the ones who were at least somewhat responsible for Jesus being up on the cross, they're saying if he's a king, he should act like a king. Now, their only reference and their sort of idea of what a king was was through the earthly kings. Jesus was again a very different king and lived a very different way. But they said, well, we know how this works. Like, if he's really a king, then he's got to fight. He's got he's to stand up for himself. He's got he's to fight to get down from the, the cross. And if he can't do that, then he's not really a king. The soldiers mocked him too by offering him a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. If you really are a king, do what kings do and, and take control and, and have the authority and, and save yourself, right? That's how this works. Verse 39, one of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, so you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself 
And then he adds in that sort of part of the way the world thinks. And also, too, would you save us while you're at it, too? <laughs> Don't you know how the world works? Like, yeah, you should save yourself if you really are the Messiah, if you're really the king, if you really have all this power and authority, then you should use it for yourself. But Jesus lived a different way, and he died a different way. Now, the obvious, sometimes overlooked point, though, with this is um, that these people didn't understand, and I think sometimes we don't understand. We're like, why didn't he save himself, right? If Jesus would have saved himself, he would have forfeited his ability to save those people. If he did what those people asked him to do, then, they, then he wouldn't have been able to save the people <laughs> later on in, in, from their sins. And if Jesus would have saved himself, he would have forfeited his ability to save us as well. That he was so focused on others all the way through to the bloody, bitter end of his life, which is a very different way to live and can be a very different way than what we are living. So to illustrate this point as we sort of wrap up, um, I want to ask you a question. And some of you in the room might know the answer to this because some of you are, well, actually, I shouldn't say some. All of you are very intelligent people, and including if you're watching online. Um, but don't Google this if you're online. I want you to actually honest this answer, uh, honest this, answer this honestly. There we go. Don't combine those words. Okay, here's the question. Do you know the name of the emperor of Rome when Jesus was crucified? Do you know the name of the emperor of Rome, the most powerful man in the world when Jesus was crucified? Do you know the name of that? Now, you can't say like Caesar, right? Because Caesar's just a title. It's you know, also a salad, but it's not the name of the actual emperor. Um, and it's also not Nero. Nero is another famous emperor that some people know. It's not him. Now, some of you might know, but the reality is most of us have no idea who the emperor was during Jesus' crucifixion. The most powerful man in the world at the time that Jesus seemed to be the least powerful man in the world dying on a cross. It was Tiberius Caesar, if you didn't know. The most powerful man in the world during the Roman Empire, in this time when Jesus was dying, crucifixion. And now he's basically, right? I know if you're a historian, you don't think he's basically this, but he's basically just a footnote in the story of Jesus, who was crucified. And at the time, had no power politically, no power at all in his life. And now Tiberius, the, the greatest political leader of the time, is just a footnote in Jesus's story. And yet today, most of the people who walked in the room, all of you who walked in the room, all of you watching online, most of everybody around the world has heard of Jesus, but they maybe haven't heard of Tiberius Caesar. So the kingdoms of this world or the kingdom of God? The kingdoms of this world or the kingdom of God? Who are you going to follow? Because it's so tempting to follow the kingdoms of this world and all the politics and all the movement of all the things that are happening politically. And you should be involved. We've said that over and over again. You should be involved politically. We're not saying you shouldn't. But ultimately, who is, your, who is your allegiance to? Who are you submitting to? Who are you choosing to follow? Am I going to rule me? Are you going to rule over you? Uh, who's going to be the boss of us? Who's going to have the final say in our lives? Because eventually, we all have a decision to make. Are we an admirer of Jesus only? Or are we actually a follower of Jesus? Willing to live our lives the way Jesus lived his life. And even being willing to die the way that Jesus would die. To sacrificing our rights. To, to doing everything we can with others' focus. That I think pretty much everyone on earth, in some ways, even people of different religions, can admire Jesus. They think that you know, the teachings and the miracles were all great. Or you know, the way that he treated people was great and all those great things. Uh, there's lots of politicians, I would suggest, that admire Jesus. But there's a significant distinction between admiring Jesus and following him. And his way of living in this world is 
quite different from the way that the world would have you naturally live, the way that we naturally want to live even. And at the epicenter of the Christian experience is this daily decision to submit to a king, Jesus, before we submit to anybody else, before we submit to the the political leaders of our day. That Christians follow Jesus, and politicians sometimes tend to just admire him. And there's a significant difference. We can admire Jesus, that's great, and I hope all of your politicians admire Jesus. It's not even a bad thing, right? But there is a significant distinction between following Jesus and just admiring him. We're called to follow him.